If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hey everyone and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Oh my goodness, you are in for such a treat in this uh, brand new series. We'll talk about that in a second. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the best-selling Jesus Un series uh, of books on deconstruction and reconstruction uh, available on Amazon. And I'm also the founder of the uh, Square One course and community for people that are going through deconstruction and moving into reconstruction of faith. Our next session starts February 14th. Go check it out. Uh, join us there. And I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Derek, uh, Katie, and Matt. And uh, introduce yourself. Say hi. Hi, everyone. My name is Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. I'm so excited about what we have in store for you today. I'm so excited. I'm just going to keep it short so we can get right to the um, subject matter. And I am Derek Day. I am the the founder of the Forward Podcast and uh, co-host of this podcast. And I also write the blog, Love Minus Religion on patheos.com. And I am eating fucking bacon right now. There you <laughs> go. And I am Matthew DiStefano. I've got so many things coming up shortly, sometime in 2022. So what I'm going to tell everyone to do, bookmark allsetfree.com. And that's where everything's going to be uploaded when the time comes. But now that we got a new series, let's get into it. Katie. Going down. So y'all, you may be wondering, why aren't we having our usual banter? Why is this so short? Where's the heretic of the week? But we have a special series for you beginning with this episode. And this is our, the very beginning of our decolonizing series. And in the decolonizing series, we're bringing you a series of guests who are going to join us, not as the heretic of the week, but as the heretic... Heretic of the Week supersize. They're going to join us as co-hosts uh, to tell for the whole entire episode. So, you know, like three, four hours from now, you'll get to the end of episode one. No, I'm kidding. We're <laughs> like 45 Damn. minutes, an hour. <laughs> we could have we could have talked to all of the guests in this series for that long because they really are that amazing and that great. You're goddamn right. So we're doing exactly what we're talking about. We're decolonizing. Um, we are talking about really important things like race and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity and how those affect the way um, we see God, the way we experience the divine. And hopefully at the end of this series, you'll have some new options for how to explore this crazy thing that we call our spiritual journey and our deconstruction and reconstruction journey. Um, have I left anything out, co-host? What else do we want to say as we're getting started? No, I think that uh, that pretty much covers it. This is a really cool series and super excited to jump into it. I just have two words to add. Hell yeah. Cool. We're super excited. Okay. So your guest for this episode, our co-host, is the very wonderful Reverend Shonda Ja. Shonda is a personal friend of mine, a wonderful colleague. She and I um, co-host and co-teach quite a bit together. I'm so pleased to have her here. She's going to talk to us about Asian American theology, different ways that Asian Americans interpret the Bible. She's also an activist. You're in great hands. So let's go ahead and introduce Shonda. It's the heretic of the week. My name is Shonda and I am a heretic. Hi, Shonda. <laughs> it was really exciting to experience that live. <laughs> That's the reason anyone comes on the show. It's the right? only That's reason. Right. The reason experience. I'm here. <laughs> well, we hope it's more than that because we're going to have you for well, like 45 minutes or so. Right. so. No, I got what I needed. I'm out. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for <laughs> this the show. for the abuse. That's our motto. Shonda, yes. tell us why someone might call you a heretic. So I grew up mostly in Akron, Ohio, and uh, any of the people there who called me a heretic, it was because I did not try to save my Hindu father from an eternity in hell. Why not? What what stopped you? Yeah. Right. What stopped me is a good question. My yeah, mother wow. stopped me. So I was raised in a multi-religious household. My mother is Scottish from Scotland, like still has the accent, Presbyterian. Uh, my father was Hindu from India, from a state called West Bengal. Um, 
they totally had that like old school meet cute at a Glasgow college dance and, uh, and fell madly in love. And so I'm going to be honest and say, I never had a very conflicted relationship with Jesus. I loved Jesus like my best friend from the time I was three, which meant growing up in Akron, um, that that was a little too much for my uh, Scottish Presbyterian mother. And so I ended up hanging out with a lot of evangelical folks because they understood what it meant to love Jesus that much. But I remember when my grandmother in India died and I was really sad. And my best friend at the time came up to me and said, uh, why are you so sad? And I said, my grandmother died. And she said, well, that, that is sad. Was she Christian? And I said, no, she was in India. She was Hindu. They're all Hindu which is not completely true, but, um, and she said, well, it's sad that she's going to spend an eternity in hell and skipped off to play on the monkey bars, right? Because, I mean, in her life, that was the reality is I should have tried harder to save her while she was still alive. Um, and I grew up with a lot of folks who loved my father because he's the most decent man in the universe and who prayed regularly that he would find Christ so that he wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. Um, but for whatever reason, my mother was determined that this was really stupid um, and refused to let me engage in any of that, right? And so I was just lucky to have a very, very sensible mother, Um who raised me with an appreciation of Hinduism, even though she's the one who made sure I went to church every Sunday. She's mean, but she's very smart. She, I was like, she's just not taking <laughs> shit. Yeah, well, she said, does not. You said she's Scottish, so she has to be mean. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. She is all of the stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> so well, one, of, one of the, well, the thing that Shonda is here to um, be an uh, expert voice on uh, is, in fact, on like, uh, Asian identity and Christianity, like Asian, Asian American hermeneutics to use the fancy word and theology. So I'm going to just like kind of like start the conversation, especially with the background that you just described, Shonda. So first of all, what terms should we be using? I just threw a bunch out there. Are any of them right? So I think Asian American theology is a good place to start. And I mean, the interesting thing is that while, you know, Asians on this globe are, you know, well over two billion, two and a half, somewhere in the two to two and a half billion range. Um, there are not tons and tons of Asian Americans in this country. We're creeping up towards 5% of the U.S. population. And of that population, not a ton of us are Christian. A lot, I mean, Christianity is not the dominant religion in China or India, which uh, are the largest uh, Asian populations in this country. Uh, Korean Christianity is, is a big thing in this country. There are certainly Christians, Asian American Christians of every religious identity, but Asian American theology is a really emerging field still. What's exciting about that is it means that we have an awful lot of progressive theological voices. And so, I'm not going to suggest I'm giving a good representation of all Asian American theology. I'm choosing just to ignore the stuff I don't like. Um, and I'd rather talk about some of the folks that I think are doing really amazing work and are building a sense of community among Asian American Christians and grounding us in what I would call a liberationist perspective. I imagine that uh, your guests... Uh, who are bringing the wisdom of Black theology and Latinx theology will also talk a lot about liberation uh, theology. And I think that's the exciting thing about this series that y'all are doing is um, folks who know oppression also know a different way of engaging the scripture, right? Because what's where I always like to start is we often forget that our that Judaism and Christianity and Islam are all Asian religions. Now, I will, I will definitely get down with anyone who says Jesus was a black man. There's, I have no qualms about that. And, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but I would say most geographers would make the argument that, um, that those religions fall within what we would call um, debatably the Middle East 
Northern Africa and Asia. Yeah, Afro-Asiatic is Afro-Asiatic. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think what's important to remember about that is those are regions that are familiar with oppression. They're familiar with colonization. um, They're familiar with marginalization, and they are familiar with what it means to be um, an underappreciated community within a larger empire. The reality is that Asian Americans, many of us come from colonized countries. And so when we read the Bible, we see the stories of colonialism and we see the stories of a community seeking to survive and overcome and build alternatives to empire. Um, That's the good news of the Asian American theology and biblical interpretation that I get to immerse myself in. Now, it was a long time before I came across a lot of that, and so I was... I was lucky that I stumbled upon James Cone when I was 18 years old. He was 50% off at uh, the Borders bookstore in my town. Oh, you lucky dog. That, I wish yep, I could buy nobody, that book for 40% off anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> and it was God of the Oppressed. And yeah. all I had to do was see the title. And I'm 18 years old. And I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Yeah. Um, so I've really been blessed by a lot of Black liberation theology that shaped my experience But when I was in my mid-20s, I came across some Asian American theologians. Um, The first book I read in that arena was a book called What is Asian American Biblical Hermeneutics by Tatsong Benny Liu. And the reason that book resonated so deeply with me is he was the first person I came across who said, In this country, we're living in this space between black and white. We're living in this liminal space. And as Asian American Christians who are trying to navigate being an underrepresented group and a group that the narrative says are doing really well even when we're not, how do we turn to the scripture to help us figure out how to navigate that? So his book, what is Asian American biblical hermeneutics did a lot to help me engage the Bible in some ways that were more culturally resonant for me. You said you came up in Akron, Ohio. Yep. And 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 Akron is is an interesting place. It's sort of like Cleveland Light, right? So there was there was a lot of um, it, it was a, it was a hotbed of civil rights movement. Um, mm-hmm. Back back in the in the fifties and sixties, and and I know that um, there there were many uh, people who were in the civil rights movement, uh, like John Conyers in Michigan, uh, and then you had um, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael. I think he he was uh, he was based in Cleveland, or he's from Chicago, but he he was uh, he spent some time in Cleveland, and having all of that as a geographical influence. What I like to know is what what did you take away from, because I think the, the whole black liberation theology thing is really interesting because it looks at uh, scripture from the, the, uh, the Jews coming out of a place of oppression. And, and so black liberation theology builds on that. But I want to know how did you take, how did you uh, build upon that in, in your um, formulating your theology? So When I was in first grade, uh, the movie Gandhi came out and my father took my mother and me to see that movie. And and it was the first movie where we weren't, you know, we, my mother and I always snuck in our own popcorn in a paper bag. And my father got super mad at us because we kept crunching our way through, you know, these horrific bits of the movie. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, um, that movie had a huge impact on me. And a couple of years later, we're reading about U.S. history. And... They talk about Martin Luther King, and they talk about how he was influenced by Gandhi. And I'm like, oh, that's one of our guys, and he's connected to this guy. This guy must be one of my guys, too. I read every book in the school library about Martin Luther King. I made uh, the music teacher play the song, We Shall Overcome, that was in the back of one of the books so I could hear it. And in light of the fact that in Akron in those days, there were two choices. There was black or white, and I knew white wasn't quite right. Black was where I aligned myself. Now, all these years later, I recognize the ways in which that's problematic. But 
My first entry into racial justice work was very much around solidarity with the Black community. And I actually worked for a member of Congress who helped establish Martin Luther King Day as a national holiday, um, the congressman from Akron, Ohio. And when his seat was up, uh, when his seat was in jeopardy, when the Republicans were re- really coming, am I allowed to talk about sure. parties? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You can, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like you're surprised to learn I was working for a Democrat. Uh, what? When, when, <laughs> when his seat was in jeopardy, one of Dr. King's sons uh, walked the beat to, uh, to campaign for him uh, during a particularly rough campaign because their relationship had gone that far back. So I'll be honest and say it wasn't until I was an adult, a little ways into adulthood, that I gave myself permission to even think about the role that Asian American identity might have within racial justice. That was a later discovery for me because I was shaped by the same thing that a lot of us are, which is a narrative that this is only about black and white. Yeah. And, and that's what I think is so fascinating, um, Shonda. So, I mean, it's fascinating to kind of, as you, I love that phrase, the sort of the liminal space between sort of white Christian theology and black liberation theology and, and, and Latinx uh, liberation theology. And so it's fascinating to see how Asian American theology kind of gets uh, informed by these two different things. But I guess what I'm really curious about is what are the distinctives of the Asian American theology that, that makes it not white theology and not black theology, uh, liberation theology, but makes it uniquely the Asian American theology? Just like for our listeners going, what is this exactly? What are we talking about? Um, you know, what are some of the distinctives of it? What sets it apart and makes it unique? Yeah. So I think that one of the really significant parts of that is Asian American theology doesn't delve very much into the journey of the individual. We come out of collective cultures, and I don't want to, I don't want to make that sound as flat as it is. I think uh, there are some Asian American theologians who do delve into that. We are both individuals and community, but the theology does emerge out of the sense of community and collective, much like the Bible does, uh, which is why I sometimes say, yeah, it's an Asian text. Um, So I think that that matters. I also think that most of the best of Asian American theology really takes seriously what it means to be engaged in what we call decolonizing theology. Um, And so I think that uh, Kwok Poilan is one of my favorite theologians who takes seriously that issue of colonialism because that's a shared experience that most of us have internalized in some fashion, uh, whether it be the Philippines or India or um, Korea or China, um, that we have that shared experience of colonialism, which maps on in many ways to the stories of the Bible. So I think those are two things that are pretty distinctive about um Asian American theology. The other thing, and I don't think people talk about this very much, but one of the things that I've noticed is the ways that hospitality shows up as a theme over and over and over in Asian American theologies, even if we're not saying, hey, look at us being Asian. Um, that that notion of hospitality and how it shows up in the text and how it shows up in what it means to be Christian community is just so foundational. Even when we're using it in kind of radical ways, um, one of my one of my favorite uh, groups is a is a group called Pan Autumn Pacific Asian American. North American Women in Theology and Ministry. Um, it's an atrocious acronym. It's so hard. <laughs> but um, the acronym is great. It's the, sounding it all out. Yeah, it's so easy. easy. You yeah, need yeah. an acronym. If that's your name, you better have an acronym. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a yeah, at least name. we don't make everyone say it every time. Yeah. Um, but that group, they put together a book um, of theology, and it was. The, the theology book was called On the Menu. Uh, 
Um, and the reason for that was because of the centrality of everybody having a role at the table, everybody having a role in welcoming each other, um, everybody contributing what is distinct towards a collective experience. And so maybe it was called Off the Menu. Oh, you'll have to Google it to, to catch it. But uh, the fact of the matter is, even a very radical book of theology, of Asian American feminist theology, is still grounded in notions of hospitality as a theological premise. And I think that that's also distinctly Asian American. And uh, Rita Nakashima Brock, who was a heretic of the week, like a, sometime in 2020, um, she's a member, I think, of Pan Autumn. Yeah, I'm gonna, I well. was going to give her a shout out at some yeah. point because her books are all books everybody should read. Yeah. So something I'm going to want to ask everyone in this series, and I'll ask you now, is how, and maybe this is a bigger question than we have time for, although we tend, we tend to solve all the world's problems in our oh, episodes, yeah. as you know. But Absolutely. in case we don't, um, how do we get people, because we're doing this, we're doing this, uh, this series on, you know, we're, we're talking about Asian theology, we're talking about Latinx, Black liberation, and on queer theology on down the line. How do we get people to realize that there are different theologies and their white theology is a theology. It's not just theology because we, we always add these disclaimers in front of them. It's kind of like uh, African-American. We use that instead of, but then we don't say, you know, European American or something like that. How do we move away from just seeing white theology or colonial theology as de facto theology? Yeah, now you're getting into my day job. Uh, I'm an anti-oppression trainer, uh, by, so that's my an anti-oppression train consultant. Us up. Train us up, yes. yeah, right. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think that this is our generation's task is what we would call decentering whiteness, right? Um, I remember having a conversation recently with someone who got mad at me for saying that uh, we, my denomination has a saying that we are living, sorry, loving, witnessing, and serving from our doorsteps to the ends of the earth. And I was asking people to investigate the ways in which white supremacy shows up in that phrase. And he said, but it comes from the Bible. So how can it be white supremacy? And I said, I think it makes a difference when a group of people who are, you know, mostly illiterate, mostly from one region where they haven't had a lot of exposure to other cultures, are invited into this task when they are on the margins of society is very different than our 85% white denomination making the same claim. Uh, and it hadn't crossed his mind because whiteness is so normative for him that it hadn't crossed his mind, oh, the disciples came from a different context. Um, and that's the work of decentering whiteness. And I think that's, that's our generation's yes. theological task. Yeah. I wish I had more of an answer than that. No, that's um, a great answer. Other than that's, that's your job. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think about this because I, I, um, I'm, I'm an executive in corporate America as well. And, uh, and one of the things that, that, uh, is a challenge for us is to, um, to basically have this broad tent approach. So let me walk me through what a, uh, a diverse, a diversity consultation, uh, that you might be engaged in. How would you first engage a major multinational corporation and what kind of things might you bring to them? And how is that all colored? by your theology, pun intended. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can say colored because I'm, I'm, I'm black, but yeah, I, I, it, yeah, it was, it was intentional. I saw it. I saw it coming. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a good question because I have done some of that work and usually where I don't love doing this, but there there is always a business argument to be made for diversity. Corporations that prioritize diversity benefit not just because they look good, but because all sorts of diversity actually leads to different worldviews and different perspectives on things, which means uh, we end up with a greater, uh, broader set of um, analyses and possibilities that... Uh, and 
we're also more likely to catch errors, right? Um, because people are seeing things from different places. So there's a business case to be made for diversity. But the reality is, if that were true, then everybody would be doing diversity. So the reason we do diversity requires more than a commitment to the bottom line. Um, but I think that actually most of the people who make up corporations do have um, ethical desires and commitments, and I have not found it to be that hard a pitch. So we tend to talk about the power of diversity, the power of equity, the power of inclusion. And the reason I love doing that, even in corporate spaces, even in secular nonprofits, even in institutions of higher education, is because at the bottom of it all, um, my theology is shaped very much by an understanding of turning power on its head. Um, and I think that that's very much uh, the story of, you know, Jesus was a community organizer, but he got all of his best tips from Moses. Uh, so like throughout our scriptures are these narratives of turning power on its head, um, which in some ways is even more powerful to me because a lot of Asian cultures, um, people get punished in particular ways for resisting what is the norm. And so I think that the scriptures end up being a particular gift to Asian Americans who have been trained into keep your head down. It's how we survive. And it provides an alternative narrative for us. And I like to think that I bring that into my anti-oppression work as well. Yeah. So speaking of that, Shonda, I think it would be interesting to hear a little more about like what you do as anti for your anti-oppression and activism work. And particularly how and if that ties into your um, identity as an Asian American woman and Christian. Sorry, that's like three questions all in one. Take take it in any direction you would like. That's Excellent. <laughs> I'm notorious for doing that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's great. Um, so yeah, I think my... It's interesting. I'm just launching a project now. I am... I, can I brag for a second? That's not an Asian thing to do at all. Uh, but I just got a humble brag. Humble brag. A humble brag. I just got accepted as a fellow in the South Asian American Digital Archives. Um, they're trying to capture the stories of the less told stories of South Asian Americans, and. I got into the program based on wanting to tell the stories of South Asian American workers who got involved in labor campaigns, um, right? Like there's, you know, the Afghani hotel workers and the, um, the Punjabi truck drivers and the, um, the Nepali casino workers who were doing work that was under, uh, undervalued and who engaged in active resistance in solidarity with uh, labor unions. We don't tend to tell those stories because we've been sold this model minority lie that Asian Americans are all upper middle class and are all doing really well. And I think it's important to tell yeah. the broader story. Everyone's a doctor um, and lawyer. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I remember someone in high school getting mad at me because I was in regular math and, uh, and, and he didn't, he was like, but you're Asian. Uh, and so, so like that model minority lie is very alive. Well, right? you're the choir, not the orchestra. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Kept ruining everything. So, and, and also my father was an engineer, whereas every other Asian he had talked to so far had been a doctor. Um, mm -hmm. And so I had messed it up on two fronts. So anyhow, for me, I think I mentioned that my draw into justice work was around addressing anti-blackness in this country, uh, which is a very real thing. And I also, growing up in Akron, especially in post-industrial Akron as the tire industry was collapsing also really had a sense of the need to be in solidarity with workers, right? So a lot of my activism is around labor justice and, uh, and around issues of gentrification in Oakland. I helped start a collective of nonprofits called the Oakland Peace Center that brings together 40 different nonprofits in the Bay Area uh, to address inequities 
in the Bay Area that contribute to violence. Uh, and that tends to be racial and economic inequities that are the root causes of the violence our community faces. So that's a lot of the activism and organizing I do. I've been, I try not to get arrested if I don't have to, but the times I have been arrested have been at the request of, of workers, particularly fast food workers, because, and this is a very clear place where my religion intersects with, and my role uh, intersects with my activism. When workers get sent to jail uh, for protesting, they want to make sure that there are clergy in the jail cells with them because it uh, increases the odds that they will, it decreases the odds that they'll experience abuse. And so finding clergy, a clergy woman is not always super easy. And that's become kind of my role within the movement is, oh, we need a woman who's a pastor and willing to risk arrest so that our folks stay safe. Um, so that's kind of where that shows up for me. I really believe very, very firmly in a multiracial strategy to dismantling white supremacy. And I think it is important for communities of color, indigenous and black and Latinx and Asian and Pacific Islander to hear each other's experiences, to learn each other's challenges, to dig out the ways in which we've been pitted against each other. Um, and so I, I mentioned I started out deeply committed primarily to addressing anti-blackness. And as I've continued to do racial justice work over my life, I've realized it's actually important for me to acknowledge the ways I've experienced marginalization as an Asian American and to pay attention to the ways Asian Americans have experienced oppression in order to be able to show up as my full self in useful ways to the movement um, and to find ways to build bridges so that within particularly the South Asian American community, we can be digging into and acknowledging uh, the ways in which we're marginalized, which helps us also recognize the ways in which we contribute to anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenous practices as well and anti-Latinx. Um, we've got some of our own work to do around that and we need to be in relationship with each other to do that work. So that's where my cultural identity shows up in this work. Um, that said, sometimes when I am doing training, people stall out because they showed up to do anti-racism by which they mean deal with African-American civil rights and talking about anything else. Um, tends to throw people off their game. I just uh, was doing a Bible study on racial justice uh, and somebody asked, uh, one of the lovely white women who's showing up with deep commitment to this work asked for an illustration of interpersonal racism. Um, and I shared, I shared a story and it was a silly one. It was about the fact that, you know, I get searched by TSA at a much higher rate than other people. I've tracked the numbers. And she immediately got really angry and she said, I'm white, I get searched by TSA, I'm darker skinned than you are. And I was like, what is going on? Uh, I was like, and I was trying to get to the microaggression of people not believing me and she illustrated it before I could <laughs> explain it, right? And so and so I think there's, there's an element of, um, in the midst of trying to do the work well, we still end up all having these trigger points Within the Asian American community, I definitely have dealt with people saying, I don't, you know, don't tell me about anti-blackness. You don't know how much I've gone through. Um, and it's so we all have various trigger points that I think we're working through. And owning my cultural identity and my own experiences has been a really important part of that work. Yeah, this is so good, um, Shonda. I mean, wow. So, you know, I, I, as I'm listening to you talk about um, wanting to address sort of anti-blackness or, you know, these, you know, racial, uh, issues. Um, speaking as a white, you know, Christian American raised by white Christian Americans, um, <laughs> what I, what I tend to notice is that, um, I mean, I agree with you. It's so important to talk about all these things. Absolutely. But it feels to me as if, and I want you to maybe comment on this and what you, what you think about this. Cause I feel as if, all that is so good and so important. But until white Christian Americans 
engage in this conversation. Um, learn how to listen to other voices that are not white Christian Americans and really try to understand what's going on and to even admit that there might be a real problem, that it's not some imaginary thing that was invented, right? Um, like I, I look about, uh, look at all this pushback on critical race theory. I just sent Matt a link to a YouTube clip that I could not believe on YouTube. And all I can say is OMFG, um, what the heck, right? Here's some white guy denying critical race theory and calling it satanic and it goes against the gospel i'm like dude what gospel are you reading what are you talking about what about this issue is anti-gospel i don't even get that reaction so i guess all that to say i would love to hear you talk about the how, how necessary it is for white christians to engage in this conversation if we're going to make any progress because in other words it's not the duty of the black person or the Asian person to solve the problem because they're not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem are the white people. <laughs> and until the white people admit there is a problem and are willing to say, maybe there is a problem and maybe I can be a part of the solution, um, I don't see how we move forward. So I was doing a, an anti-racism training for a group of churches in Northeast Ohio, not that far away from where I grew up. And so in many ways, these are my people, right? But we're talking rural Northeast Ohio, and it was an all-white group, and it was a three-hour training. I started it out with a sketch by Hari Kondabolu, uh, who's one of my favorite comedians of all time. And he starts out by... Uh, Part of his sketch talks about 2042, uh, the year that white people will become the minority in this country. And his line is, um, people are freaking out. White people are freaking out about 2042. And he's like, white people, don't worry. You were the minority when you came to this country. It seems to have worked out fine for you. Um, so anyhow. I do this three hours on redefining racism and, and talking about people's experiences of watching the tanks roll down the streets in Cleveland and all of this stuff, yeah. right? And at the end of it, I asked them the question, so why does this matter to us as Christians? And instead of answering that question, one of the women said, well, you started out by talking about 2042. We need to talk about this because we don't want them to do to us and she stopped herself. She stopped herself from finishing what we know was going to be the end of that sentence. And she finished it instead with anything harmful. Uh -huh. And I felt like that was really telling. But I got to be honest, and I don't know... That this is this is probably why, what I should have said was the reason I'm actually a heretic, is I've gotten to a point in my career where I'm like, I'll roll with the white folks who want to have this conversation. But you know what? I'm more interested in talking with the people of color about how we can get on the same page because y'all, it's in your best interest to line up with us because we are oh. actually going to be in California. Yeah. We're already the majority. Oh, Textbooks are changing. <laughs> y'all got to watch out. Um, so it's not my job to convince you to be on our side. It's, uh, it's it really is in your best interest to do yeah, so. I so y'all have that conversation with Asian yourselves. Overlords uh, that are coming in 2022. <laughs> I love you all. <laughs> you know, I um, I actually work for an Indian corporation, and and and, and here, but here's the thing: the, um, the 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 interesting the interesting thing about this is that we we have good conversations around racial lines. Uh, I I have a, a really good friend, Nitin, who's Tamil. And and he he gave an illustration where he did some paper cutouts of the of the of India on the map and how it would fit into the Horn of Africa. Nice, uh, you know, in a Pangaeic. See, my theory has always been we're actually Mexican because we eat the same food. But <laughs> I respect both theories. Well, you know what? Nitten was like, he's, you know, he's six four and, you know, a slender guy and he can actually play basketball. And he said, hey, dude, we're, yeah, we're all yeah, related. Yeah. You know, you're, yeah. you're my cousin kind of thing. But anyway, what I find interesting is that the diversity conversations around race tend to be pretty fluid in uh, among my colleagues. What's not so fluid are diversity conversations around gender or gender roles, uh, male, female, 
uh, but also gender fluidity and 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 the LGBTQ spectrum, and and I see that those conversations are not easily couched. So, in your experience, what are some of the things that that you can help me to do? to help drive those discussions because I, I'm, I'm good at sitting down and, and I can tell people about the black experience in America and growing up in Detroit. But, but I, I also have become an advocate and a, uh, and, and a um, celebrant for uh, LGBTQ causes. And I would like to drive some of those conversations that are not being had. So help me out with that. That's a great question. So there, so I, I'm, I actually identify as queer and I definitely have experienced it as a hard conversation to have with family. And at the same time, I mean, this is the interesting thing. In many ways, family remains family anyhow. So there are things that we're not supposed to talk about, but that doesn't mean we don't know that they're going on. And so I, I was just part of a a program where queer artists of color got to tell stories uh, and acts in all sorts of different ways, accessing uh, the queer archives so that we could highlight more stories of queer people of color. And I focused on the stories of queer South Asian immigrants because uh, I was focusing on ancestors, right? And I, I wanted to learn about the stories of the people who had come here before and who had dealt with the repercussions. And the heartbreaking part of that is the only reason we have any records of queer South Asians in this country in, say, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, is from prison records. The only reason we have any indication that they existed is because they were incarcerated. Um, and they were, in, they were more likely to be incarcerated than their uh, white counterparts because the, the narrative, uh, the anti-Asian narrative was that Asians were predatory and untrustworthy and had probably drawn poor, unsuspecting white men into, um, into that behavior. So they were much more likely to be incarcerated. But I think, I think one of the challenges I faced in that same, in that same wrestling with that same question is there are lots of illustrations. There are transgender gods and goddesses in Hindu tradition. There, I mean, literally, there is, I mean, Shikandi was born a woman and became a man and was one of the great warriors in the, uh, don't quote me on this, the Ramayana. But if you try to bring that up as a great illustration, then, um, then people are like, yeah, that's not us, though. That's the gods. That has nothing to do with us. So I don't know that I have a good answer other than the same thing that works for a lot of people is helping people develop a sense of empathy for the struggles that folks are facing. I think that is something that is universal. So just, oh, just, just introducing the conversation is probably the best thing that can be done, right? And you know what, what that also offers the space for is... You know, by me raising this with my family, all of a sudden there were people that my that my nieces and nephews are friends with who could say, "Oh, you're a safe space." And so that I, talking about it isn't just for the person you're talking to; it's also for the people around them who are listening. Um, so you don't know who you're creating space for in raising the issue. And to just name, you don't have to like anything about it. You just have to admit it is awfully hard to be them. I think is a good place to start. One of the things that's occurring to me is um, how valuable this conversation might be for um, people, uh, maybe white people growing up kind of evangelical, but I think not exclusive to that too, just based on your on your story, Shonda, um, of like you being introduced into this kind of theology too, um, you know, as a person of color growing up in the, in the Midwest. Um, is Ohio the Midwest? Yes. Okay, growing up in the Midwest. Um, and so the, um, but I know for me, when I started reading about interpretation of scripture, like through the lens of hospitality from Asian American voices, it, it just opened my eyes up to this whole new way. And so I, oh, yeah. for me, part of this value, part of the value of this conversation yes. and is actually that it's, there's I mean, it's, multiple ways. Well, and it's the same and as the conversation right we were just ways. having about uh, 
you know, but there's not, how do you talk win. about diversity in a business setting? Actually, one of the big wins about broad diversity in a business setting is you get multiple perspectives, all of which have contributions to make. And I think you're absolutely right. The same is true in theology is we're coming at things from different lived experiences. And that that's the gift we bring to each other. I think you're 100% right about that. Shonda, yeah, I, I really love that you brought out the fact that earlier on in the conversation that one of the distinctives of the Asian American theology was emphasizing community and hospitality, because this is something that's fascinating to me. I've only recently noticed this myself uh, in when I was looking at like the Lord's Prayer. I, I realized that Jesus doesn't say, you know, when you pray, say, pray my Father who is in heaven or give me my daily bread or, you know, lead me not into temptation and all those things. Then it's a, com- a prayer of community. It's a prayer of our. It's, it starts off by saying, it's not just my father, it's our father. It's, it's, it's everyone. It's our community, right? It's not, I don't pray not only for my daily bread. I'm concerned about everybody's daily bread. God, give us, give us our daily bread, right? Lead all of us not into temptation, but deliver all of us from evil. And noticing that, that Jesus focus was on community. It was not on only me and, you know, just me, myself, and I. That's very, because I think evangelical Christianity has a very individualistic perspective. Um, And it's been so helpful for me to try to go back and reread the Gospels through that really more of an Asian lens uh, of, of community and hospitality and connection with everyone else. It isn't just about me, it's about everyone around me. And I love that. I think that is such an important thing. Uh, if there's anything we could take away from Asian American theology, I think that's one beautiful thing that we could all learn from that. I think that's absolutely right. And actually, the covert agenda I had when I wrote, I wrote a 365-day devotional. It's called Liberating Love. And I think my covert agenda was reintroducing people to this understanding that the Bible is actually about community. Um, one of the most dangerous myths that the founding of this nation, well, Huh. Um, there are three dangerous myths in the founding of this nation. Let me, There's let me more than say. one. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> enslavement exploit, and exploitation of, of labor, the, um, the violent extraction and theft of land, and the perpetuation of this impossible myth of the individual yep. being, uh, being possible as if, you know, I think individualism or, um, yeah, American individualism is abusive to almost all Americans. Um, and I think that that's a really important uh, part of deconstructing white supremacy because it does harm to working white folks. It does harm to everybody except for a really small handful of folks. And so even if it's the people of color who are the ones who keep bringing that up, uh, it's, it is actually for the well-being and the thriving and liberation of everybody. So I want I have a question about um some of our terms uh as we're get, as we're getting into the um to the details. And so we've been talking about Asian American and you I think you've um mentioned we're talking about India, China, Korea, Japan. Um but I feel like we're um leaving out the PI in API, mm-hmm. which is just a term I've heard a lot. So API, Asian Pacific Islander. So yeah. are we talking, are we, so Shonda, just help us. Are we talking about API or are we really talking about Asian American sort of at the continent of Asia? Like what's that relationship between Asian, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander? Um, and I just want to like, there's Asia itself is gigantic. The Pacific Island, Pacific Island itself is gigantic. So yeah, what are, what are we talking about? You know, and I'm really glad you bring that up because I think the different categories that we navigate, um, are all politically constructed. So even Asian American as a category was something that was formed as an effort of solidarity among groups that had previously not seen themselves as in relationship to each other. Um, Out of our learning from the Black Panthers and the Brown Berets and the American Indian movement, Asian Americans began to organize and mobilize collectively in the late 1960s, um, early 1970s. That was not a category that really existed before then. And somewhere around the late 70s, early 80s, we um, began to talk about Asian Pacific Islanders, Asian Asian and Pacific Islander Americans, AAPI or APIA. 
um, Asian American and Pacific Islander or Asian and Pacific Islander Americans because Pacific Islanders kept getting left out of the conversation. That's people from Samoa and um, Guam and and the Pacific Islands. Um, they were getting left out of the conversation. There are some Pacific Islanders today who are saying, stop pretending we're part of this collective when you never actually advocate on our behalf. And who are saying, actually, our struggles are different. Um, oh, Hawaiians are also included in Pacific Islanders. Um, so I keep going back and forth and trying my best to listen to my Pacific Islander family because they experience a distinct form of marginalization. Um, I will say there was a training I was doing for API Christians, and I was talking about systemic racism, and I was really struck by the upper middle class Korean American Christians in the in that training were saying things like, "I don't experience racism. My friend, my white friends treat me like I'm just the same as them." Even that statement by itself shows you some internalized racism because they're like, "I'm almost as good as the white kids. That means they're I'm not dealing with racism." Simultaneously, um, the Pacific Islanders, when I talked about systemic racism, were saying, oh, yeah, I've dealt with police harassment. I roll deep with my black family. This is before Michael Brown was killed. Um, so the phrase Black Lives Matter didn't exist yet, but um, before Trayvon Martin was killed. So before that phrase existed. But their point was, we're not saying we have the same experience as black folks, but our experiences are a lot more like black folks than like what you all are talking about. So there are distinctions. Um, there was also another category that was created in the wake of 9-11 because um, the way 9-11 impacted the Asian community was felt much more deeply by South Asians, North Africans, and Middle Eastern people. And so sometimes you'll hear a category that groups together um, South Asians uh, Middle Eastern and North African folks. Um, so it depends. And all of those are political distinctions, right? So when we were, when we were talking about post 9-11, that didn't impact East Asians or Southeast Asians or Pacific Islanders in the same way. But this past year and a half, most of the anti-Asian violence has been uh, directly experienced by East Asians, Southeast Asians, and some Pacific Islanders. Um, because, I just want to be like, yeah. let's help. Yeah, that's specifically coronavirus. That's exactly right. Thank China you. China virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just yes. This is a this this podcast is evergreen. So yes, and we're recording um, in 2021, y'all. Oh yeah, thank you very much. So the experience that people have uh, that uh, the anti Asian hate that has emerged in the wake of the coronavirus has been more distinctly felt by East Asians, South uh, Southeast Asians, and Pacific Islanders. Uh, you know, I have friends who are Filipino who have been beaten up on the street because white Americans suck at being able to tell all, any of us apart. So, you know, <laughs> uh, the same was true after 9-11, that there were right. Mexican-Americans who were getting beaten up. There were, you know, Sikhs. Cesar, yeah, Sikhs, Sikhs, Sikhs exactly. were up because they're wearing a turban. They're yeah. not Muslim, but they assume in, they're Muslim. Yeah. In addition to the fact that Muslims shouldn't have been getting beaten up in the first place and right. Chinese people shouldn't have been getting up, beaten up in the first right. place. Right. I want to just go back to something just to reemphasize the importance uh, we, we were talking earlier and you mentioned uh, white folks in 2042 becoming the minority. And I will just say that like white folks should, uh, it's, it's, it should, it's good. It's positive. I'll tell you, like I grew up, I grew up uh, in the inner city in the Bay area in San Jose around, you know, Mexican folks, Latin, Latinx folks, various Asian populations, black folks. And just the, uh, you don't realize the amount of, different voices that enrich your life unless you have empathy, unless you have this contact hypothesis of like learning from other people that you might otherwise, I mean, I didn't hate folks, but if you do hate folks that you don't know much about that you're ignorant towards, if you hate atheists or gay people or whatever, like unless you are around them, being empathetic, learning from them, you don't realize how much you're missing. So, so this whole idea that this whole racist notion of like, what is it? The replacement theory, like uh, where it's just like, uh, other than, <laughs> I, I won't say what I want to say. Um, <laughs> so now you have to say it. Come on, come on, say it. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of cruel, but the, 
the people who are not getting vaccinated and they're promoting disinformation, they're kind of kind of bringing it upon themselves in a way. But um, that's that's probably a different conversation. But just a, just a, the yeah, hey man, yeah I, I just I said colored, so everything <laughs> everything's on the table now. The everything's really kind of there, yes. That's right. <laughs> you just you just miss so much when you, when you're when you're only with quote unquote your people. Like if your people are not all different. Yeah. race, religion, colors, creed, and sexual orientations, you don't even realize how much you're missing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So I want to say two two quick things, one of which is it's one of those necessary but not sufficient, right? Because people who, the people who are expressing the greatest anxiety about people of color taking over are very often in monocultural spaces. They don't have relationships with people of color. Right. I will say proximity isn't enough because- sure. I've lived around people and I hate them as a result. Um, so <laughs> that's also a thing, right? Bad neighbors are cross-cultural. Yeah, that's absolutely bad neighbors, true. Bad neighbors everywhere, yeah. And I've seen people get stereotypes reinforced, um, but but I do, but, but I think being isolated from each other comes at a cost. I do think the other thing that's going on in the conversation that is, forgive me if this is off topic, but... I also think that whiteness comes at a cost to white people because I think that I have had a lot, I'm, I'm working on a book right now about how connecting with our spiritual and cultural ancestors can equip us for the work of dismantling white supremacy. And I actually think that's true for white people as well as people of color. And one of my, uh, actually, uh, a colleague of mine that, that Katie knows, BK Woodson, brilliant pastor, African-American man. Um, he and I were talking about this and he was like, I don't, I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I hear you. Um, and I, and, and I said, but BK, would you ever want to be white? And BK said, I'd like all the stuff white people get. And I was like, yeah, but would you want to be white? And he said, no. And I was like, right. Cause we know whose we are. Yeah. And that's something that white people often get taken away from them in order to benefit from the privileges of whiteness. They lose their ancestors. They lose their cultural identities. They lose their history and heritage. Yeah. Yes. You know, this whole thing about, um, I do, I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful thing that the day is coming that white people are not, no longer the majority and in, you know, uh, by de-, de facto in power and their point of view is what, you know, runs the world and all that stuff. But I mean, I would want to say to white Christians who are listening, if you're still listening <laughs> to this, to this podcast, um, why, why would it be a bad thing in your mind? Like to lay down your power? Like, why would it be a horrible thing if white, white people no longer had any power? Like to me, it seems like the most Christ-like thing you could possibly do. Isn't that what Jesus modeled for us? This idea of laying down your power, um, right? Considering others better than yourselves, uh, coming and washing the feet of other people, um, you know, humbling the greatest among you is the servant of all. Like I, I would, I would challenge white Christian Americans to look at this impending, you know, day that is coming inevitably, like it or not, that one day, uh, whites, white American Christians will no longer be the majority and, and, and uh, be in control and in power. And to, and to say, so you know what? To see it as a good thing, why would it be a bad thing? Why, explain to me in your Christian context why it would be a bad thing. Why wouldn't you be willing to go ahead and lay that down now? Um, I don't know. I just think it's a fascinating way to look at it. Like, uh, it's, it's really weird to me, like I said earlier, you know, watching videos from these white Christians acting as if, this conversation is something evil and satanic. And I'm like, I disagree. I actually see it as something very Christ-like. And it's, uh, it's very telling to me that white Christians cannot, cannot approach this idea of the day that's coming, that they would lay everything down. And I don't understand why they wouldn't even willingly do it. It would be the Christian thing to do. I think this so. is another Asian part of the Bible is how much humility is centered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I'm wondering where the organ is right now, because I, I, I would, I would, I would surely hit you, Shonda. I'd hit you up in a C sharp right about now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Never learned to hoop. Sorry. <laughs> well, Shonda, 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I, I know we all do. This has been fantastic. Yeah, so good. And I, I was feeling what you were saying at the end, especially about, I mean, like everything, but when you just said I, I, white people lose an identity, because it's like, I just found out I'm part Turkish and I'm Azorian and Sicilian. And it's like, no, nah, it's just, it's just mass of white dude. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, technically, sure. But I, it's like that, that structure is not what I'm about, nor should it be what any of us are about. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. I was feeling this whole conversation. Yeah, it's been such a gift to be with y'all, by the way, because as as I've already mentioned, um, long-time listener, first-time caller. Shonda, I want to be your friend in real life. <laughs> we're, we're happy your heretical status is sealed, you know. I love ever- it. My yes. mother would be very, very proud. <laughs> yes. Well, we are so honored that you came on here and, and said all these beautiful, amazing things that you said. Um this has been a wonderful episode, and thank you for being our our co-host for this conversation. It's, it's been, been so fun. Thank you. Shonda, uh, tell us where people can find you um, the best. You, you have so many things going on. Um, what's t- Tell us the multiple places to find you. The one-stop shop, the easiest place to find me is at shondajaw.com. And sign up for my newsletter. I'm trying to convince people with a weekly newsletter that there is joy in racial justice. Now, a lot of people are about to go to the wrong site because they're going to spell your name wrong. So spell that all out <laughs> one letter at a time. One letter at Absolutely. a time. Absolutely. So the best place to find me is S-A-N-D-H-Y-A. J-H-A dot com. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. It's easier. Uh, you can also find me at withoutfearconsulting.com. That'll just bounce you over to my page anyhow. I just signed up. Well, yeah. well, I'm, I'm going to sign up too. Yeah. I love it. Um, so with y'all, all the accolades, I just want to point out that like, I know Sean. <laughs> like, We've we driven across country together. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> The best and the worst. The best and worst of me she's seen. Mostly the worst, but... It, it makes you even more special on my side. We have done a lot of drinking together as well, which feels appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to hear those stories. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's for the Patreon community in the bonus room. <laughs> I really want to be your friend in real life. I swear I do. I would love that. You, you, are, you are the shit, for real. All right, I just signed up. I just signed up too. Can't wait. My first email, my first newsletter. Y'all missed the one on wombats and prejudice. That was uh, my best one. Oh, forward that to me. Forward that to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. This has been great. Thank you so much. Sandra. Thanks. That was, that was mind-blowing, yeah. y'all. I know if you're listening to that and your mind is not blown, you are not a fan of the Heretic Happy Hour. So <laughs> you, you, had, you had to enjoy that. Um, and like we said in the opening, that could have gone on for four, five yeah. hours. But we, we want to respect your time. And over the course of the whole series, we'll have, uh, you know, six hours, hopefully, of, of great content. And that was, that was just the first. Yeah, so good. So good. But before we get into the next episode, you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks. But before we do that, we do have a website, heretichappyhour.com. If you haven't binged all of our episodes, all of them are there. If you haven't picked up any t-shirts or hats, they're all there. We got a bookstore with all of our, well, most of our former Heretics of the Week. So head on over to heretichappyhour.com and check it out today. What are you doing with your life if you have not done those things? I mean, come on. Exactly. Buy our (laughs) shit. I could have just said that and made it a lot shorter. And Sean is almost as prolific as Keith. So hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have some of her books. Wait a minute. uh, In the bookstore. Um, she writes there, like one about one one a year at least. So there, um, there's somebody that's as prolific as Keith. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, but uh, almost, but I believe almost. it. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, and so you can also join us in Heresy After Hours. That is our free, free, free Facebook group. And Shonda actually indicated to me she would like to come on and maybe do a live. So maybe this week Ooh. you will see a live video with Shonda in Heresy After Hours. We have a lot of other heretics in there. We have great conversation. It's a really nice, safe, closed space to talk about your deconstruction journey and join with other people who are um, experiencing a lot of the same questions and 
they're experiencing the same questions. They're experiencing some of the same things that you are and have some of the same questions that you do. So yeah, we'd love to have you in Heresy After Hours. That sounds amazing. And if you love the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and if you're still listening, I'm guessing you do. Um, you need to go and support us because we need your support. And not only when you do that, when you support us, you will unlock so much extra bonus stuff. I mean, over a hundred different um, bonus interviews and just extra little podcast conversation bits and so much stuff. Like I can't even tell you all that's going on. You got to go check it out over at patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And by the way, if you already support us, mwah, we love you. You're all, you're the best. And uh, we could not do this without you. Thank you so much. And how could you get through your day without a sloppy wet kiss from <laughs> Keith Child? <laughs> Fucking amazing. But listen, if you want to really grease the skins for your favorite heretics, go out to iTunes and give us a five-star fucking rating. I mean, just tell everybody. Tell your mama, your daddy, and your brother, too, because we're about to go down and you know just what to do.